Welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the afterlife of colonies. We'll think about the afterlife and past life of colonialism around the world. What is colonialism? Where is the West? Where does the desire for modernity come from? Which are the changes that survive and which do not? Are national formations primarily a result of colonialism? What is the interplay with religion and capitalism? Can people around the world have universal aspirations? What imprints does colonial literature carry? How has Asia shaped Europe? Will colonialism ever be over? What is the future of cultural variation and is the future necessarily hybrid, heterodox and messy? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Surinder Singh Jyotka. He is a sociologist and teaches at JNU in New Delhi. He works on social inequalities, focusing on caste and its reproduction in contemporary times. Professor Dilip Menon. He is a historian and teaches in the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. And Professor Gauri Vishwanathan. She is a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University in New York. She works on the cultural impact of colonialism among other areas. So, uh, Surinda, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe with a very quick assessment, uh, whichever way you look at it, of what do you think is the shadow of the colonial past? Uh, you, you're somewhat more familiar with India, obviously, but in a more somewhat general, abstract way of the colonial past that many parts of the world share on on the social formations that we see today. Um, and, you know, where and when and how can one draw a causal link to what might have happened or what did happen in the past? What would you say are a few signature aspects that stand out the way you think of it? I think the most important thing uh, in this context would be the very idea of India and the way we imagine ourselves as Indians, uh, various kind of identities, the kind of issues that we think are most urgent. For example, for a long time, we wanted to become a modern nation state and becoming modern nation state involved that we should get over several identities. We should not only transform ourselves economically, but also in terms of our personal lives, also in terms of our social relationships. We have to move from rural areas to urban areas. And we were given a package about our identities, that you live in villages, you are organized around caste, you are very religious, and you have kind of irrational mindsets. And all that was, in some sense, uh, uh, attributed to us as our inherent qualities, which we have lived with for centuries. And this starts uh, at so some level. So there was level. a from to mapping that, you know, you're here and you need to go yeah. here on all of these axes. Uh, there is also a binary construction where West is uh, all modern, which is what we want to be, which is what we ought to be, which is what we have to be. In the sense that there's a notion of evolution 
which comes with colonial, uh, in some sense, understanding of the world. And before that also you have what we call as Orientalism, and that constructs the rest of the world uh, different from, from the West. And in that rest of the world, India has a specific character. And that character then is uh, encapsulated uh, in these three, four foundational categories, whether it is category of caste or it is religion, which basically means Hinduism, understood in a particular way by uh, European West. And obviously, most importantly, caste. Now, caste is not something which uh, uh, is a word that we ever used. Caste is a word that Europe used for its own social structure. Right. And then they started talking about the uh, presence of caste in India, caste-like systems in India, and gradually caste is in some sense becomes uh, our essential character and we begin to think of caste in a particular manner. In manner so are you in saying which, that there was no such thing as caste or or is your point something else? I mean, it may have been called something else, but clearly your, your issue is not with the nomenclature alone. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about caste in a kind of sociological language, the way I understand it, it's basically a, talking about ascription-based hierarchies. Right. Groupings of people which we are born into and which have some kind of, you know, legitimacy in culture or past. or a, So all societies in the world have been divided. Uh, the moment societies began to produce surplus, there were processes of differentiation. And those differentiation processes, in some sense, were also structured around ascription. Right. And those ascriptions included around, say, community formations or even questions of gender would be part of the same kind of ascriptions. But so in the all... case of India, for example, and, you know, obviously we declared independence in 1947 or whatever, but these things are not switches. They don't go from one state to another. Now, if you were to look at the decades leading up to the independence uh, to 1947, were some of these changes already afoot? I mean, in our self-image and in, our, in, in the way we thought of ourselves. Yeah. yeah. See, uh, I think there are two things. One is uh, social reality called ascription-based hierarchies, which exist in most societies, if not all societies. They exist in India. They exist in local regional formats. And that was called caste by the colonial rulers. And then they tried to theorize it in a particular way where it was attributed exclusively to Hinduism. And this becomes a religious kind of uh, reality and it is devoid of political economy, land relations, while actually in reality all these ascription-based hierarchy uh, intersect with, with, with materialities, the way people kind of organize their agriculture, the way they organize their marriages, the way they organized uh, residential systems in a, in a small rural settlements or urban centers. India was also a land of cities. India was not only land of villages. Right. So these are structures that existed in India, going back to your first question. But these questions, these structures were significantly diverse um, regionally across South Asia, which we now call caste. So it's a particular language, particular kind of narrative is given to those realities to make us opposite of the West. That's where the problem lies. That's why colonialism and afterlife of colonialism becomes very important. So we are given a kind of identity because you have caste, therefore you can't think rationally. Because you have caste, therefore you can't progress. Because you have caste, you would be stuck to village. So these are then kind of uh, uh, characterizations of our life which make it imperative for us to remain dependent on rational modern West. And that's how colonialism justified its presence in India. And that's then comes to us through development studies in 1950s that you continue to keep looking. So there's a template to be followed. 
Yes, yes, there is not just a template. There's a whole regime of global economy, global political economy and, and power structure where we are placed in the third world as a country which is incapable of developing on its own. And in some level, our nationalist movement partly borrowed from the colonial narratives and partly they reacted to them that we can do it on our own and we would try to build a new nation state which would be perhaps as modern as the West would be or we would become modern differently. So there are lots of different kind right. of shades. Gandhi speaks differently. Ambedkar has a different language. Nehru speaks like a classical modernist. So there are different ways in which they are trying to appropriate colonial narratives but also counter them and then say that we will build India. So yes, I mean, the afterlife of colonies stays with us, but it's a kind of, in a very complicated way, it's not a simple question of continuity, but it is also not a complete uh, break from the way we were looked at by the colonial uh, rulers and the narratives they produced, because they were internalized by our nationalist leadership, and they began to use those narratives, even when they were talking about reforms in Hindu society the very idea of Hinduism, the way they thought of India as a land of religion, which again comes largely from colonial narratives. Same is the case with village. I mean, village has been such a central category through which India has imagined itself and India has imagined its futures for itself, whether it is Nehru or Gandhi or Ambedkar. Sure. Everybody thought all Indians lived in villages. That was not empirically true. We That's had cities, point. we had we had very vibrant urban cultures and they were all regionally, in a sense, connected to rural lives in yeah, different regions. You lived in Surat for a while. I mean, it yeah, was connected yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. All over. the world yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah. Now, Dilip, you're a historian and you've thought about this in many contexts, including India. You live in South Africa currently. Now, I think Surinder very briefly touched upon the idea of a nation. Would you say that if there was no such thing as colonialism in a reasonably... Um, wide way around the world, there wouldn't have been such a strong notion of nation as it exists today? I mean, would you, would you say something to I, that effect? I would largely agree with what you're saying, though I have some uh, points of difference with the way in which Surinder presented the argument about caste. Um, if one thinks about India in the 16th century, for example, I mean, right. the great French historian Fernand Brudel said we should imagine uh, India like a quadrilateral so that the southwest coast of India was integrated across the ocean with Venice, Amsterdam, Lisbon, and so on. The northwest of India was part of the Ottoman and Safavid Empire, stretching to Persia. The southeast was incorporated into the Southeast Asia and China, and so on and so forth. The coming of colonialism actually results in a narrowing of the imagination, where we imagine something that is the map of the nation, mm. a place called India, right, which is bounded, which is terrestrial, and forgets there is an amnesia generated regarding the movement of people outside, regarding the maritime histories, maritime occupations, for example. But now, were they, were they merely economic links or they, they, they kind well, of were Profound cultural and economic links, both. So where I come from in Kerala, there we have had the oldest settlement of Jews, for example, from the first century AD. Christianity from the first century AD, much older than many parts of Europe. And you could go on. There are multiple communities, like the Bene Israel in Bombay, for example. These precede colonialism. One of the things that colonialism did was to make us think with colonialism as the central fact of our history, which is the profoundly uh, crippling fact that we have to deal with. So that when we think about something like caste, for example, you know, where... India is a fundamentally violent, inegalitarian, and hierarchical society. The way in which we relate to this is to say that, look, there is a colonial discourse or a way a colonial officials misunderstood, misrepresented the nature of Indian society, 
and therefore we need to probably not think of caste as being central to India. Hindus do not eat with each other. Hindus do not marry one another. Hindus regard and treat other Hindus with violence. Like every new day in the newspaper, you can think about Dalits being killed, matrimonial advertisements which separate one Hindu from the other and so on. So I think we need to think centrally with that violence. It's our nationalism that prevents us from understanding that India is profoundly different in a certain way. It's not like is other hierarchies. Is it unlike other parts of the world? It's very unlike other parts of the world. It is why, uh, I mean, when you think about what Ambedkar said, see, India is characterized by an ascending hierarchy of reverence and a descending hierarchy of contempt. That is how our society is structured. You could clean toilets in the U.S., but that doesn't reflect on you, your family, and generations to follow, or in the Middle East or anywhere else, Africa for that matter. But in India, you're stained by your position. I think the question is, what does uh, what does this interregnum of colonialism, right. at least in the British context and so on, the context of India again, and we'll generalize it as we go, what does that do to that question? What does that do to that perception? It's altered, right? I mean, there are ways in which the 300-odd years of colonialism alters the way in which society exists. It alters existing hierarchies. How, it, how so? In the sense that when one thinks about the first thing that happens after conquest, after pacification, is the revenue settlements, where the English have to decide that we need to create structures not only for the collection of revenue, but also to create law and order. So they arrive at a settlement with existing landed groups, like in Bengal and Kerala, with community groups in Punjab, with individual uh, cultivators in Madras, multiple settlements. All of these function within an existing fault line of power. So in that sense, there is a way in which colonialism perpetuate certain forms of hierarchy and, in fact, even exacerbates forms of hierarchy. And there's a whole uh, history to be drawn upon here. So this is not just creation of a new bureaucratic class and elites and so on, but you're saying it does something else to it, it magnifies. Yeah, we tend to see, if you look at colonialism backwards from the emergence of nationalism, then you would look for the emergence of what Surinder said in terms of the modern. So there's education, the growth of uh, social reform movements, and so on. But if you think about the society that existed prior to colonialism, there was considerable flux, there was considerable movement. So, for example, if you look at southern India, most of the kings were shudras, right, who then proceeded to sanctify themselves through ceremonies like the Hiranyagarbha, where they acquired Kshatriya state. It was a very fluid kind of society. Right. But colonialism does tend to congeal existing forms of hierarchy. Were, and, these, were these boundaries uh, hard or they were somewhat porous? No, actually, I completely agree with him. And uh, see, point is that South India had a specific history and the kind of political formation that evolved there are specific to South India. And similarly, if you were to go to Punjab and look at Ranjit Singh or even before that, those were systems that connected more with what we now call as Middle East uh, for example, Ranjit Singh's official language was uh, was Farsi, right? Uh, not <laughs> right. Sanskrit. I mean, they, they didn't really. So Farsi was the language of, of, of governance and also language of culture at some level, apart from their local languages, which were Punjabi and whatever else was spoken there. It was not Urdu for sure in that region. Um, so 
um, that's the point I was trying to make. So when colonialism comes in, it's not only gives us a different kind of territorial identity on the basis of whatever... Was there truly a different territorial identity or is this something that we kind of are putting on it in a somewhat post-facto basis and scholars like you are doing yeah, it? Yeah. Was, I mean, territorial, was it part of the yeah, consciousness? Yeah. No, no. Uh, territorial identities become concrete only in 1947. Right. <laughs> when the world begins to organize itself around territorial, kind, territorially identified passport-based nationalities. Before that, these identities were always very fluid. I mean, kings depends on how far you can go. Right. And that's how the Britishers also entered in India. So that is a fact. National realities or nation states become realities only in the middle of 20th century globally. Around the world. not Around the world. Territorial identities, concrete identities called nation state. But I think the point that I think where perhaps we slightly disagree that uh, before India becomes a nation state, there is nothing called India in the manner in which we understand today. Hmm. So even when we think about caste system, we will have to think through regional histories of caste. I'm not saying that caste did not exist in pre-colonial period. Uh, people like Kabir, uh, Ravidas or Nanak, they were confronting realities of caste and they were thinking of caste precisely in the manner in which Ambedkar in some sense later on thinks about questions of humiliation, so kyo manda akhiye, jit rajan, is question of gender. Or Nanak is saying, manas ki jat sab ek hai pehchan bo. Guru Gubind Singh is saying, manas ki jat sab ek hai pehchan bo. They're using the word jat. Right. And they're saying that there is there is a value in 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 treating everyone equal. So it's not like caste was a static reality which had existed and everyone was Hindu. That is where I disagree. Everyone was not Hindu, and Hinduism in itself, as as we understand it today, was very fluid and evolving cultural uh, reality. Many streams. Yeah, yeah. There were realities. There were many kind of uh, uh, communal formations. People had their own notions of what they thought was. A transcendently desirable or moral world of theirs and they also had their material realities and those kind of intersected and very important role was played by political processes when 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 Mughals come here or before that other rulers come here or you have so local kind of princely states there was, was there a thing as India? Was there a thing called India? Yes, Something at some like level, the, the, those see civilizational imaginations are there. If if you fi you find in in travelers' account much before yeah, that, coming from China, right? Yeah. So, on, yeah. so there are these civilizational regions, you know, India and China. That's how West begins to get attracted to thing called India because there is something called <laughs> India, which they think is something very interesting and something that 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 we need to write about, that we need to know about, and that we need to compare ourselves with. So these 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 regional identities were there. But the way we think about these regions as nation states is again a separate history and separate subject for discussion. Where are you on this, Gauri? I mean, the how does one think of those processes and the dynamics of how the colonies were perceived back, back home, back where the rulers were? How did they make sense of, uh, you know, these distant lands which were apparently under the rule and... How did that process go? How did they form their impressions, facts, stories? Where did that come from and what insights lie there? Well, first of all, the key word in what you are just asking me about is the word they. Because the they in the, in the, in the, in the <laughs> right. um, metropole is a very, um, it's a very mixed uh, you know, group of people. And I think this is one of the problems when we By do talk about... By which you mean that the Dutch are different from the English and so no, on? No. Or even within the English? No, no. What I'm saying is that even within England, 
the position taken by, say, the Christian missionaries was not the same as the uh, position of uh, a colonial administrator. East India Company. East something. India Company first and then uh, merging with the, with right. the crown. And missionaries tended to be more proactive at, uh, in, in the early years, for which reason actually they were not even allowed uh, by the East India Company to, um, you know, to do their proselytizing work in, uh, in India. It was only after 1813 that there was a freeing up of um, um, uh, missionary uh, activity in, uh, in India. So the missionary position was certainly, <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but the missionary <laughs> position was certainly not e um, equivalent to or interchangeable with the colonial administrators who, in, in fact, this is where I might disagree with uh, both um, Dilip and Surinder, that the, um, you know, the, the, the formation of caste as a, um, as, a, as a construct, as something that was theorized by uh, the British and uh, in order to explain a society which they found extremely difficult to um, uh, understand, so that caste seemed to be um, a facilitator to understanding things like ascription, hierarchies, um, marriage laws, and, and so forth. Um, in fact, I think there is an interesting um, divergence between the ways in which it was often the missionaries who were trying to um, combat what they considered to be the um, inequities produced by by caste. And they would take up the issue of, um, say, uh, the disinheritance of Christian converts by their Hindu right. uh, families. Um, so that while the missionaries were taking up um, the advocacy of um, um, Christian converts, it was ironically the British administration that bent over backwards in, to protect the in, uh, integrity of the Hindu uh, family. And they often ruled against um, Christian converts. Um, as you know, as people who had just moved over to another religion, and whatever legislation um, that must have been some kind of an administrative compromise. Right? It was, but I think it was also out of this uh, persistent fear that if they did too much to rock the boat, right, both among the Hindus as well as the Muslims, they would be payback. Right. For um, for that kind of um, um, it was just some kind of pragmatism at work. Extreme. Yeah. I think this was their pragmatism, and as far as the East India Company was concerned, they were just you know wanted to maintain their commercial transactions and have a compliant um, set of subjects, Hindus and Muslims, who would do their bidding. So anything that involved religious interference was um, frowned upon by the um, uh, colonial administrators. So there... So now you mentioned 1813, Gauri. Mm -hmm. So from then, does this just take off or um, this, this, this missionary work and so on, or is it still a trickle? No, it wasn't a trick. In fact, it was uh, then, uh, uh, after 1813, the missionaries more or less got the green light to set up their own schools, which, by the way, more not English language schools, as you would expect. Right. You know, if you look at today's, um, you know, convents, um, missionary-run institutions, which are very often uh, English-speaking institutions. The missionaries, in fact, in the earlier, in, especially in the early 19th century, promoted vernacular education uh, because they were, they were trying to solicit 
um, um, a wide demographic. And a lot of times the students who are going to the missionary schools were from the downtrodden um, classes who were economically uh, depressed uh, classes. And uh, the missionaries sought to provide what they believed were the values that would provide um, uplift. Now, did the church think that its goals coincided with that of the East India Company and later of the Crown? No, not not at all. In fact, I think in, especially in the early 19th century, there was this, there was considerable um, disagreement about the goals of, um, in this case, of education. Uh, and as I was suggesting earlier, that for the for the for the British, you know, maintaining the status quo, not upsetting the apple cart, keeping the Hindus and Muslims appeased, so that they would not feel that their religions were um, uh, insulted or challenged or threatened. So that where does the literature enter all of this, Gauri? Well, this is really, I think, the key question that hmm. the um, the British were caught in this kind of weird situation where. On the one hand, they wanted to maintain the status quo. But, and this was, um, in fact, that the, the phase of um, education that marked that um, uh, moment when there was a, a encouragement and promotion of the study of Indian classical language, Sanskrit and Persian primarily, uh, that was the phase called the Orientalist phase. Now, we shouldn't use Orientalism in the sense that Said, uh, Edward Said, uh, referred to Orientalism, which in his reading is really more like a system of uh, control and management. Right. But the Orientalists were really, um, you know, the William Jones and the um, uh, Nathaniel Hallhead, you know, the, the people who were uh, actually genuinely interested in the study of uh, Indian uh, uh, antiquities. Um, and it's really the transition from the Orientalist to the Anglicist that we're <laughs> beginning to see something different now. And with Macaulay's Minute of 1835, which um, disfavored the Orientalist policy of promoting Sanskrit and Persian. And there was kind of reversal, uh, whereby Macaulay's Minute more or less mandated the study of uh, English language and English um, literature. Now, to go back to your question about where does literature come in, um, because they, uh, the British uh, colonial administrators found themselves in a difficult position. On the one hand, they didn't want to upset uh, or offend religious sentiments. But on the other hand, they also felt compelled to introduce uh, what they called English values, you know, of uh, morality. So of this is some kind of a civilizational right Exactly. Impulse. The civilizational rhetoric was something that they were seeking to do without um, teaching the Bible, for instance, <laughs> without teaching the values that so in Somehow England, transfer the values without necessarily doing it via religion. You hit it on the nail. It is exactly the case that... Um, uh, the ideas of religion and the values promoted by religion are now being taught not via religion or through the teaching of the Bible, but via uh, the teaching of English literature. So now, now, as far as, uh, and you know, we'll go to the others, but did the authors think of it this way or this was just like a selective carrying of texts from England or wherever to India? It was a selective carrying, but there's also, I think, this very careful um, understanding that, you know, you teach Milton, you teach even Shakespeare, you know, you teach uh, Samuel Johnson, you teach the, uh, the the great figures of English literature who communicate these values of civilization, of, of, um, of uh, good order, moral being. 
So all the values that are cherished by uh, Christian thought could be communicated, but not through the Bible. Yeah. So English literature became the surrogate yeah. for religious teaching. Does this make sense to you, Philip? Absolutely, because... Oh, A kind most, of moral training. No, most, most of what I know of this comes through my reading of Gauri's work, so I'm completely <laughs> in agreement with her. But I think what Gauri is uh, raising is a very important point that... Uh, uh, the title of a book, Masks of Conquest, right. suggests the ways in which religion becomes a, a default, right, in the teaching. So when you teach literature, you're actually teaching religion because there's a training of the sensibilities that happens towards a reading of the Bible, towards an acceptance of Christianity and so on. Uh, so I'm completely in agreement with what she says. But you know, one of the things I just wanted to step back to, I mean, I think Gauri very uh, crucially raised the question of what we mean by they, right? And uh, it's not merely the differentiation between the Dutch and the Portuguese and so on. I think we need to understand that we're speaking about very few countries here. We're speaking only about Western Europe. We're not talking about Scandinavia. We're not talking about Bulgaria, Romania, for but example. But were they, were they imperialists? No, but when we talk about the idea of the West we tend to think about the West as being Europe, but we're actually talking about a few countries, Germany, France, England, and in an earlier phase... But Germany Spain, was not... Uh, yeah, sure. In the, when when in, you say Eurocentric, you kind of include all of them, at least as yeah, the... exactly. And, 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 the, and, and there so is on. a kind of exclusion that happens within the idea of Europe as well. Sure. Right? So, uh, I mean, Germany comes to us via Hegel, right? right? And the fact that Hegel uh, acquires a great purchase, particularly in Bengal, and in our understanding of history, in our understanding of the world spirit. Yeah. So a lot of the... Moving towards the stilos and all that. Exactly, exactly. How does uh, the idea of culture, Surinder, the self-image, I don't know whether you've thought of this track at all with whatever happened in 35 with Macaulay before and after and so on. Is there there an element of uh, literature that that plays into how some of these... uh, perceptions are formed, the way you think of it in Punjab or elsewhere? Also, I mean, overall, uh, Punjab, it comes a little later, but say starting with Bengal or Maharashtra, where we are sitting, this whole reform movements, mm. uh, the whole idea of uh, Which education. Which borrows heavily from there. No, no, not the formal education. When uh, British introduced school education here and the rise of what we call as the Indian middle class, and this middle class then also begins to uh, preach a particular kind of... Uh, way of life and value system, which is borrowed from, at some level, what they were talking about, Christianity, but is also seen as as being modern. Right. And in the process, you also uh, produce your own culture as being not only traditional, but also irrational and, and problematic. The whole narrative around question of sati, for example, it's a very interesting kind of subject. Uh, now the, the, the work done by people like Lata Mani shows that after the passing of sati act, incidence of sati actually goes up. Right. Sati was never a popular practice. Uh, say, in, in Bengal, reformers are talking simultaneously about sati as well as widow remarriage. If sati was so popular practice, would there, so they, they wouldn't have been widows, right? Yeah. So, so this is this is again kind of, in some sense, normalization of a particular kind of Christian Western culture, which then is used to also uh, uh, make Indian internalize the subjugation by the West in the manner in which the lip is how using. Does one, how does one reconcile these two positions, Surinder? Because there's this uh, strain of thought in what Gauri said about 
not upsetting the apple cart and so on yeah, yeah and this yeah. so maybe something minor is picked up and blown up a little bit is that the case because the two things one is there is a question of details i think completely agree because she is the one who's worked on it i don't have any disagreement on that but there's a larger project what is called as white man's burden i think which in some sense continues till today that there's a larger project of subjugating uh, say countries like india and indian minds which happens through the way middle class is in some sense uh, cultured into what they should think about is good for india and the way they think about what is good for india is the way the west would want to think about what is good for india and that is through westernized education thinking rationally a particular way of what is what is rational instrument of rationality or whatever you like to call it but simultaneously also saying that your own culture does but not did have, it have those to be forced upon us or yes. because you know i mean we were we were very free free people we could have done what we liked india yeah. was land of village republics and villages were all static forever that was the understanding and they were static because we had castes so there was a whole theorization of indian society which also starting with hegel's writings on india said that hindus were incapable of changing on their own there was no agency hmm. they were incapable of thinking rationally they fatalistic. were yeah so not just fatalistic they were kind of stuck in time and space and they were happy with that equilibrium even somebody like karl marx when he when he talks about india he reads this literature and says that britishers are actually doing great thing in india by breaking the equilibrium of village society india was not land of villages there were villages in india but there were also urban centers india was not a static land india was not culturally static ever it was always changing the reality of caste was also changing internally and it was also interacting with rest of the world through trade through various kinds of political conquests it was internally in some sense mobile uh, you have all kinds of cultural movements you go to 14 13 15th century you sure. find new kind of musical tradition coming up new kind of literature emerging from the land and this literature is also in active interaction with other parts of the world not isolated locally right so all kinds of things are happening which are all in some sense put together and produced as as static i'm talking about broader sense in details yes of course there are a lot so, of variation so how is india and other colonies represented in the colonizers literature because it's the it's a representation question and whether you see honest mistakes strategic mistakes or are these uh, what's happening there how does one think of this uh, in a somewhat uh, meta way uh, i i'm so glad you came back to this question because you began asking <laughs> yes. this um, earlier uh, and i think this is a very important um, uh, question that allows us to step back and reevaluate the way that colonialism is being understood even at the time in which it was a, a grand uh, uh, project uh, presumably um, to uh, to control to manage uh, people who are deemed to be different uh, from um, uh, the western um, uh, from the westerner and i think you know the literature uh, um, i'm fascinated by you know the the the, the works by uh, rudyard kipling by rider haggard um in the 19th uh, early 20th century uh in extending into the bloomsbury circle looking at aldous huxley you know reading the literature of the 1930s and the 1940s because i think what one can see quite distinctly is that the um criticism of the colonial project was not simply on the site of uh, uh the colonized territory it right. wasn't simply coming 
from the anti-colonialists, but one could also see a questioning of that project within English uh, fiction, where the um, you know the the negative representations of Indians uh, are only matched by the negative representations of the English working class, and um, you know <laughs> the, the growing momentum for an internationalism. Um, uh, found a common cause in looking at the plight of English workers and um, uh, uh, colonized subjects and looking at the ways in which, you know, the colonies were not some faraway place, but that, in fact, England had its own colonies within its metropole. Um, in Manchester, the, slums, the cotton workers. The slums so. of London. You don't. You don't even have to go as far as Manchester. <laughs> but you know, just looking at the slums of uh, of London, looking at the way that Soho is represented, and I can just name two. And these are drawn as parallels, or they're equated. What? What? what what's but happening? They're, they're, they Soho. Um, I can give you two examples. One is a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, a very well well known novel, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Right. Which, of course, is now almost the stuff of popular imagination, you know, the experiment and alchemy that goes wrong. Right. But what's so interesting is that this alter ego that uh, Hyde creates is made into a resident of Soho, which is identified with immigrant populations, mm. immigrants, gypsies, and the phrase that's actually used is people of different nationalities, all of whom are ghettoized in this dirty, um, uh, dense neighborhood. And then another novel, uh, which also explicitly so the immigrant refers, ghettos are almost the same as colonies far away. That's right. That they. This is how actually Stevenson is looking at um, uh, Soho as a mini colony existing in the heart of London. You don't even have to go all the way to see the way that the um, you know that the colonies are represented. And another novel I could uh, point to is Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, where to you know Soho is the is where the the scumbags, the pornographers, the the thieves, and the and the assassins and the anarchists are all located. The and the, the, the threat of anarchy is coming from Soho. That's that's one of the. So is this uh, more of a class thing? It's a class thing, and that's where this issue of class and caste that's where come this together. Comes in. That's where the the issue of class and caste. So are there kindred spirits for these people in the colonies? There must be. Is there literature elsewhere? I mean, obviously, you are the one who knows about this. That's very interesting. So you know, one can see that um, even as there, you know, this fiction is being produced in the heart of the English metropole, there is implicitly within the fiction an unsettled f- feeling that's. This is not this is not a very worthy project, because we can see it happening in our own back door. You know this, and we can see the resentment, the um, the, the, the 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 threats to the established order that's coming from our own uh, ghettos. So that perception is something that is that 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 that's what makes the uh, the literature so valuable, because it contains the dissenting and heterodox elements of um, what is otherwise be seen as a very uniform and dominant discourse of representation, of subjugation, of control. But the, the fact that the colonized are not simply, you know, far away elsewhere, you know, invisible to us, but in fact very much there, visible to us, uh, and, and uh, could possibly be 
the the source of England uh, collapsing and turning over, you know, its um, its and, established order to this new class of people. And Gauri, how marginal is this voice? Does this does this reach the crown? Does it reach? Uh, does it reach East India Company? Does it reach? Uh, the governor generals. I'm not so sure if they had the literary skills to read um, <laughs> um, in the in the uh, you know uh, for the for the subtext, but I do no, think in, in that the sense the... that does it end up swaying or moving or impacting or influencing public perception uh, at all, or or is this something that you and a few experts like you know? Well, you could see this by the time of the Bloomsbury Group, you know, in the 30s, 20s, and 30s. Where um, you know they are, they are looking at the at these. Uh, um, they are looking at what's the immediate future. Um, you know, by as we all know, by the thirties, um, decolonizing movements were getting off the ground. Quit India movement uh, by the end of the thirties. You know, it was full steam ahead in the early forties. So this is exactly what people are noticing. Right. And. Uh, if I may just interject, I think we need to move beyond this binary of looking at India and England, right. the French colonies in France, the right. Dutch colonies in Amsterdam, for that matter. Because you mean there's something common. Yeah, there is all a, colonies. You know, what the Lisa Lowe called the intimacies of continents. You know, the intimacies of four continents. That there is a decolonizing imagination that actually creates these connections across geographies. Mm. So to give you a few instances, for example, so in 1905, when the Japanese defeat the Russians, right, in the war, right, right? and uh, Russia is seen as a white European power, it's the first time an Asian power has managed to humble a European power. This fact is picked up not only in India, you have the Swadeshi movement that happened shortly thereafter, which draws upon this victory of Japan. You're also thinking about the Ottoman Empire right. suddenly developing an interest in Japan. Right? <laughs> and so you have a huge number of Ottoman intellectuals beginning to write on Japan, learning Japanese, engaging with Japanese literature, Japanese history. Look at Chinese nationalists of the late 19th century. They work with a compass, a geographical compass that includes the Philippines, where uh, the uh, Americans have just defeated the Spanish and taken over Philippines. Yeah. They're connecting up with the Boer War, right, which is happening, Africa, where the Boers have stood up against the British Empire. They're also looking backwards in time to the partition of Poland in the 18th century. and the <laughs> So we have to th move beyond the myopia that is created by colonialism, where we link the history of colonies only to the colonizers. It's a much larger imagination. And you have to think about people with the temerity of M. N. Roy, who goes and founds the Communist Party of Mexico. You know, one would argue that only a Bengali <laughs> would have that temerity. But, but that's what we have. You see, it's a world that we need to think about where there are these multiple conversations happening between nationalists and very often in London, which is the home. So Shamji Krishnavarma, who sets up the India House, right? There are conversations between Sinn Féin, between Japanese nationalists, Indian nationalists. Gandhi and Savarkar meet there for the first time. So one of the legacies... And Nehru was speaking with Sean Féin at the time and so on. That's right. And he's yeah. part of the League Against Imperialism in Brussels. So nationalism creates this closing of the imagination and it creates this binary, right? India and England. But the world is much larger than that, and it always has been, which goes back but to the early history. But all of them then go ahead and seek independence, and they want to become nations, right? And that, that's what happens. That is true, and the nation <laughs> is really the closure of the geographical imagination. 
and it's a reaction. And so we begin to worship the map that was created for us by colonialism, <laughs> right? These arbitrary lines drawn in the dust, like the McMahon line, Duran line, and so on. I mean, after all, who drew the line between India and Pakistan? It was a man who came to India for a day and then gets immortalized in a poem by uh, W. H. Auden, a man yeah. who drew. So you know, so a lot of these, and we worship these maps. Funnily enough, once they're drawn, they're very difficult to undraw. That's the and that is why we need to step back, step beyond the histories created by colonialism and to realize that India always had these associations with other countries, with other insurgent imaginations elsewhere, that colonialism does not exhaust the history of the colonial period. Going back to the earlier question, I think that's very important that there were diversities of opinions within England as well about, about India, about colony, and you were talking about caste and class. And I think like Bernard Cohn, an anthropologist, talks about it, that how Britishers were compelled to explain their presence in India to their own constituencies, which were asking for democratization of Britain itself. Right. This was also a very vibrant moment in those cultures. So there were oppositions. But it was in these kind of moments that the, uh, in sense, theories were produced about the world. And so there was, were more justifications then? No, they were not just justification. They have had far-reaching implications and they survive with us till today. For example, question of caste and class. Now, there are two different ways in which the Britishers think about caste in relation to class. One is obviously that they are thinking about the poor, they are thinking about the marginal in their own country and there are poor and marginal in India as well. So they begin to classify, say, uh, backward classes and then they have this whole notion of uh, untouchability which is institutionalized as an administrative category so that some kind of affirmative action can be done. But at the same time, and something which has been far more influential and powerful than this kind of benevolent notion of uh, doing something about the poor is the theorization about caste as being embedded in simply a religious imagination, therefore having nothing to do with materialities not producing violence and humiliation and exploitation and, and segregation of societies. This is Hinduism. Hinduism is a very harmonious culture and it has existed like this forever. And it is because of their religion, because they have karma. So there is no opposition, there is no contestation. So there is a theorization which in some sense begins with, with these kinds of colonial conceptualizations about the other and then they get what translated the into social sciences. Because they get translated into social sciences, both in development studies as well as in peasant studies or agrarian studies. Or people like Louis Dumont who, who theorize caste later on. They reproduce the same thing about caste as being a harmonious system which basically Hindus believe in like religious culture. So we have nothing to do with it. This is something which is their private affair and nobody opposes caste because they believe in their karma and that is what... And this is something which continues even today. Uh, lots of people would justify caste there as, it, as if it is our culture. This was empirically not the case. There were diversities. But also politically, this is not how castes related to each other. For people who were at the lower end of caste, for them it was always humiliation. For them it was always violence. Violence pains and it, it would have hurt them at that time also. Even though a Brahmin would come and give justification for that, that did not mean that it did not produce exclusions. People were dying as they die now, cleaning gutters. Even those days also, they were not allowed to enter the village. So those would have been relationships of violence and humiliation rather than of culture and harmonious life of hierarchy, that was not the reality of caste. 
I mean, there are two things here. One is the fact of uh, the idea of commensurability, right? So one of the things that has happened as a result of colonialism, as a result of the political economy of the knowledge, of political economy of knowledge in the world more generally, is that we have to translate our societies in terms of concepts in and terms. Yeah, in concepts and Whatever histories that come is. from elsewhere. So one of the ways in which this has happened with the idea of caste is that caste is treated as something that is similar to. So what is caste like? And very often, a lot of studies have and tried to... And if you don't to, find anything, then what does it close us to? To class. And class becomes... And so you have the French uh, anthropologist Claude Meillassou arguing that caste is nothing but a congealed form of class. Right? So there is that kind of problem. And this is a larger problem of knowledge of, of the creating these commensurabilities. The other thing is also the way in which Indian sociologists and Indian social scientists generally have tended to look at the works of social theorists in as much as they write on India. So, for example, when you think about Hegel, to read Hegel on India, I mean, Hegel, uh, India was an... He was hardly an authority on India. Yeah, and it was an example of a much larger problem, right? So, it's not that he is writing a history of India. Similarly with Louis Dumont, most Indian academics read the one work called Homo Hierarchicus, in which uh, Louis Dumont makes a very schematic uh, argument about the nature of caste, purity, impurity, and a whole set of issues. But this is actually part of a trilogy, right? Where there is Homo Equalis, which is the first book. There is from uh, uh, Mandeville to Marx, which is the second volume. Homo Hierarchicus is the third volume. So three volumes in which he is saying the West is not characterized by equality and India is not characterized by hierarchy alone. Right. So what he's trying to understand is a much larger pattern, but very few academics in India actually read the three volumes together. So Dumo becomes, it's like reading the third volume of Marx and having disagreement of capital, Marx's capital and saying a fundamental disagreements. You know, so I think there are ways in which uh, this is actually also a part of nationalism, right? I mean, that you want to say, so for example, if you think about how Nisim Ezekiel responded to V.S. Naipaul's books, Area of Darkness and uh, the Wounded Civilization. Right? And he wrote a severe review. Now, when you go back to reading Wound India, Wounded Civilization and Area of Darkness and reading Nisim Ezekiel's review, you can see how merely nationalist it was. Because <laughs> India is characterized by poverty. India is characterized by a failure of its political leadership. Indian journalism as... Uh, uh, Naipaul pointed out, is characterized again by a certain uh, uh, poverty of depth. Right? Right. So there are no in-detailed studies of the kinds of things that we are all talking about here, where you go into the villages and you report the long narrative reports on what happens in India. You deal with the ephemera of politics, which politician left which party and joined other parties and so on. <laughs> so a lot of our responses have been nationalist. And that is really is a problem, I think. Just one minute. Uh, I think uh, uh, the, the invocation of Dumo was not simply a kind of uh, textual uh, reference. There's a particular way in which caste comes to be understood by the time India becomes independent. And then it gets institutionalized in the constitution. For example, when reservations were introduced, they were given only to Hindus. And because of the Dumontian, I mean, it comes much later. Well, but it the stands same, for something, at least yeah, that, that perception it, 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 The clear understanding is that caste is Varna hierarchy embedded in Hindu text. And that Hindu text is Manusmriti. 
I mean, and it is there, there in Manusmriti, but on ground, caste is never lived like Varana system. There is right. Varana in caste, but Varanas vary significantly from region to region. In South India, for example, what is talking about, most of the kings are Shudras. They begin to claim Kshatriya status when that model is introduced by the colonial rulers that you have to place yourself somewhere here. So those kinds of... And were there caste-like structures in other religions in India? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. Of course they were, right? No, no, not <laughs> completely. I mean, you go, to a, you go to a village in Punjab, the first thing you would encounter is caste, but there's no Brahmin there. Right. And in, in Sikhism, <laughs> there is no place for Brahmin. The entire Sikh hierarchy, I mean, in SGPC elections, they had to introduce reservations for scheduled caste Sikhs. Right. So same is the case with Islam, and it's not simply yeah. a question of hangover of the of their of their Hinduism because they converted out of Hinduism. They have their own local hierarchies which are exactly caste-like, and they have this justification in Islamic cosmology rather than in, rather than in Hindu cosmology. So, but every region has its own diversity of hierarchies. That's the point I'm trying to make. So it's not just single one structure varna hierarchy which gets institutionalized by the colonial rulers through the in introduction the of census and then it becomes a template even for Indian nation state when it is writing its constitution that that is the caste system. So you have to place yourself somewhere, somewhere in there. that varna hierarchy and then people are beginning to say yeah we are here not there and this is some, this is something which is continuing even today. So that is that is significant about what we call as the book view of caste, which is embedded most sophisticatedly in the writings of Dumont on, on, on Indian society. Now, I probably we have a disagreement. I think we don't take all of Dumont's work into account. But anyway, but that's an academic pedantic distinction. I think one should go and look up Dumont and read all the three volumes. Yeah, all the three volumes. And, 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 right. and make up the mind for oneself. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I actually wanted to speak to this issue about um, to where we put the, you know, the notion of... Uh, you know, th those who fall outside of the caste uh, system, um, indigenous uh, peoples, you know, the beliefs and practices that they, uh, that they follow. And this may be one of the outcomes of uh, colonial um, uh, cataloging and colonial historiography, where in its inability to make sense of very varied uh, customs and practices. Right. Uh, either those practices are assimilated into Hinduism uh, willy-nilly, uh, regardless of whether this is true or not, or perhaps is more often the case, just simply drop uh, the these other uh, groups uh, completely out of the picture. Because there's an assumption. Or to treat them as cults, you know, cults as were well, uh, pagan, animistic. Um, so there's an assumption that society can be horizontally segmented somehow. Exactly, and, and exactly. And this, it is precisely this difficulty in identifying uh, such a, you know, um, you know, such variations and such differences. Maybe the dimensionality is different. It's not. That's the, the point. But yeah. this is where I think this, you know, a number of you have uh, talked about um, the binary between the Western rationalism and Eastern irrationalism or Eastern superstition. And, you know, Indians in general are clubbed in the, in the second category of the irrational. But I think there's something much more uh, complicated going on, which is that the, you know, the, you know those who um, you know, practice different forms of belief have, may have nothing to do with being less superstitious or more superstitious or more rational or less rational, but simply has to do with uh, the degree of difference. And um, animus, you know, the category of animus, the category of occultists, occultists yeah. 
a tantric um, uh, followers that where are they um, uh, to be placed? And so I think where were they placed? They you, weren't. They literally, so they weren't. They weren't. And I think one of the most egregious examples of this is in Christopher Bailey's, you know, otherwise magisterial book, The Birth of the Modern World, you know, where he does this grand, grand uh, synthetic project. Um, and even though, you know, I think Bailey, a historian who's greatly respected, um, yet nonetheless, I think one, there was something that really stood out for me in reading that book when he very momentarily draws attention to the Shaktis, the Shakti cult. And then he says, but they, um, they followed a practice that was demonic and uh, completely irrelevant to the belief systems of any other group um, in India, and therefore not worth right. talking about. Right. And this is, a, this is a move that gets repeated in, um, uh, in other types of writing. simply because it doesn't fit the taxonomy. It doesn't yeah. fit the taxonomy. And anything that doesn't fit the taxonomy is just discarded. Now, one reason why I bring this up is that this binary between Western rationalism and Eastern irrationalism is also undone by the fact that by the late 19th, early 20th centuries, there was growing interest in occultism by, <laughs> by Westerners. Sure. You know, that some of the great intellectuals, writers, thinkers, George Bernard Shaw, Yeats, um, Kandinsky in, uh, in Russia, that here are these, uh, uh, Piet Mondrian, uh, the Dutch painter, that here are all these people who are, being, who are drawn to theosophy. But it coincides with all the art movements there. This is, this, yeah. is, this is actually the birth of modernism in yeah. art, you know, that yeah. they're bringing in what was called, in another context, irrationalism. But this is this is the birth of the modern. And you mentioned something earlier uh, in the beginning. I thought was an, such an interesting phrase. You said becoming modern differently, and I think this is what occultism is doing. You know, in in Europe, that these are people who are protesting against what they see as hegemonic ideas, with the uh, what they see as a um, uh, kind of dominant hold of the of um, uh, of religion, even as religion is on the decline. But instead of simply going towards atheism, many of these same people were turning to these alternative spiritualities. And I bring this up because, you know, when a, a cult, so-called cult like Shakti is just denounced as not fitting the taxonomy, the same thing could be true of, of, of people like Yeats, who was a theosophist, and then he was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. He was very into tarot cards and, <laughs> yeah. in, you know, communicating with the dead, you know, um, automatic writing. So where is this place? Where is the place of rationalism? Actually, if I may, in just, the West, yeah. if I may just historically layer that, this is very interesting. What happens uh, in Europe more generally after the First World War as well, because the scale of death. The fact that what they call the flower of English youth mm -hmm. dies in the trenches, mm -hmm. and uh, Paul Fussell, the great literary historian, has called this the birth of irony, as you know, yeah. the uh, unable to deal with the horrors that people have to develop a register of language that allows distance. So you find Arthur Conan Doyle, what greater example of I was of just going to mention him, yeah. you know, because he was. The, the person who created the ultimate rational detective yes, and, and was also Holmes. the president of the uh, um, Society for, of Spiritualism. Absolutely. And he was photographing fairies in his garden. And ghosts. Right? And ghosts and, and ghosts. so on. So I think these are also conjunctural things. 
But I think with regard to the Shakta and the Shakti, you know, and, and Chris Bailey is certainly no authority on uh, Indian culture because he didn't know any Indian languages. So a lot of mistranslations, misunderstandings and so on. But that's, again, another field. But I think the interesting thing that India and England share in common is a strong belief in agrarian hierarchy. So when the British come to India, they are completely familiar with the forms of agrarian hierarchy. Agrarian hierarchies exclude pastoralists, nomads. It also includes forms of worship that lie on the fringes of agrarian societies, not institutionalized in Vaishnavism, Shaivism, so the temple. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, and this is something that continues into our present. So that, for example, when we think about the current round of the political situation, it's nomads and pastoralists who will bear the brunt of producing the documents necessary to show that they are Indians. They're difficult to make citizens of. Yeah, they're difficult to make citizens of. And this was true of the colonial period. It's also true of a certain Indian past, I mean, whatever, within quotation marks of that subcontinental past. So this well, is one reason why I think Mahashwita Devi is one of the great writers. Absolutely. Because she she put her finger on exactly yeah. on this. Bringing that, that them this back is, in. She, she was questioning the very norms of citizenship right. by focusing on exactly those categories, the right. agriculture, the, the nomads, the pastoralists. Right. But the very so, classification as scheduled tribes renders them available to the mainstream society as slightly, in the process of evolution, they will become a caste. If you look at the item on uh, tribe in uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, I don't know the latest version, the version that I read in 1980s, it very clearly says that tribes would eventually become castes. G.S. Gure, who was one of the early anthropologists, he also says that they are basically primitive Hindus. As they evolve, they will become Hindus and they would be part of caste system. So tribes would become castes. Tribes would, as they evolve. Right. Again, the idea of evolution the is, idea the very idea of tribe means that they are primitive people, right? <laughs> so it's not like they are not they are not given a status. They are given a status in the, say, in the, in the broad but model. The ladder. But they are very complicated, internally very diverse. So they are all put together as tribes, so they are small groups. So that takes, that theorization takes care of. It's a kind so of residual category. Yeah. Yeah. Not just a residual category, but it also fits in the scale. That eventually, you, as you evolve, you would become caste. And caste is a traditional society. And when they evolve, they become modern. They will become individuals. They become, of they become classes. They become classes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I think the evolution process is from tribe to caste to class. And so this is kind of evolution which then again becomes very hegemonic. Where the white man is the, is the most advanced, most modern. And the person we have to follow and the person we have to learn from about our future. <laughs> You agree with that, don't you? Uh, <laughs> of course. And not. actually, I think here, I think what uh, a lot of recent scholarship is throwing into crisis, as the phrase goes, is what exactly do we mean by something called the West? Right? So yeah. if we think about the fact of the university, right, which we all teach at, the idea of the university actually goes to Europe after the Crusades. So that Merton College, Oxford, is founded on the model of a vakf. Yeah. Because Europe encounters this Arabic civilization far superior to itself. It encounters the madrasas. Right? This was the work done by George Makhtisi way so back in the... the West was once Middle East. No, the West <laughs> was Middle Easternized, right? It, it became the inheritor of an of Arabic civilization. And that's how Oxford, Cambridge, all of them come to be founded. It's amazing how these things are always shifting. Yeah, and these things are always forgotten. We become yeah. amnesiacs about this. And we can't think about the European Renaissance without that huge Arab bridge that carries over Greek thought into Europe. 
that what people whom we know as Ibn C, uh, Averroes and Avicen yeah, are Ibn actually yeah, are, yeah. are actually Muslims, but yeah. they've become naturalized Europeans. They as get Latin res- names. Yeah, they've been appropriated, hijacked, whatever it is. So I think these kinds of things, these genealogies, are something that we need to be alert to, even when we think about the idea of Europe. That uh, Europe is forged through these connections with across the globe. Yeah. Right. That knowledge has been carried to in and in the making of Europe, so that for a long time, I mean, this is a wonderful book by Alexander Bevilacqua on the translations of the Quran into English, because they did see the Prophet Muhammad as a uh, the harbinger of a certain form of religion, which was very uh, different from the clerical establishment of the church. So I think we need to keep thinking back to these histories which lie behind colonialism. Where does this come from? Where does this come from? I think keep asking that question all the time. Yeah, that's true. Where yeah. does it come from? And actually, if you think about the madrasa and the university, Christopher Beckwith at Princeton has recently argued two years ago that the idea of the madrasa comes with Islam's encounter with the detritus of Buddhist civilization in Central Asia as Islam expands and they encounter the Vihara. Yeah. Right. So then you could ask, where does the Vihara come from? And we'll have to wait for another book to explain that. No, to but us. that's why one has to always keep asking that question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, <laughs> a, a, a story I would strongly recommend is one by Kipling, by Kipling, yeah, yeah. who's supposed to be a jingoist and imperialist, which I think is completely, yes. you know, anti intellectual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, anyway, I was going to say a story I would strongly recommend is one by Kipling, which is called Eye of Allah. And it's all about, um, you know, how the Arabs had such advanced science that when the microscope is mm-hmm. brought into a medieval monastery, okay. they have to destroy it right. because it completely violates their sense of chronology. But um, anyway, I was also going to say about the idea of European history. Salman Rushdie had such a good line when he said, the British are oblivious of their own history right. because so much of it occurred elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I think that probably goes for all histories, <laughs> no? Because things are a lot more mixed up than we think they are. Yes. So where is this headed? What's the future? Where is the shadow of this kind of very complicated past, some of it colonialism driven, some of it not? Uh, what is that going to lead to? Now, obviously, this is a very, very open-ended question, but, you know, you can come at it from wherever you like. Two, three, four hundred years out, what's the future like? It's scary because I think globalization... In the literary context. In the literary context. In the literary context? Because, you know, there are these... I don't know. The literary context is so... Um, it, it's about it's about trade and commerce. You know, the literary context now is, is about, uh, you know, markets, you know, who will buy what... Uh, uh, if it's published by this place rather than another place. But the colonial so, writers and so on. Colonial writers, I thought that there was a lot of momentum in the 80s and 90s when it seemed as if, you know, Eng- uh, you mean with, English with literature. And others. Yeah, English literature was being shaken to its ground and that there was this new groundswell of writing that was coming from outside. In fact, I think it was Anthony Burgess who said, you know, I think he was reviewing Amitav Ghosh's novel. um, uh, And he said, you know, uh, England or America can no longer be considered as the foundational place for for writing in English. It's elsewhere. Um, And I think the, the great period in writing was in the 80s and the 90s. I'm not so sure now. I think there's... 
Yeah. It's a little more patchy, um, and I think there's a different culture that's set in. Partly it's a celebrity culture, partly it's the merchandising of books, and partly it's the way but that's that... But not, that's not in any way a crisis of English literature. That's a crisis no, of literature per se. Yeah, 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 I agree. Actually, but there's something here, I think, uh, you know, and this is something that's a personal uh, bugbear for me as well. You know, when you think about... Indian writers, whether it's Arundhati Roy, Amitav Ghosh, and so on, or Vikram Seth for that matter, and a whole host of others, they're extraordinarily polite to the English language, right? They aspire to write good English. Now, if you think about writers like the early Naipaul, right? He was educated at Oxford, but House of Mr. Biswas, Suffrage of Elvira, Mystic Master, has a different are, voice. Are, are written in this Trinidadian argot, in right. a patwa. Think about another Nobel Prize winner, uh, Derek Walcott, whose entire oeuvre is based on writing in a language that is very local and that revolts against the conventions of proper English. We are so you think this that... praise of Anthony Burgess is actually a praise for mimicking? Yeah, I think there is a praise for a certain kind of mimic men that is happening. And even, you know, that we aspire to write good prose. We've all been to convent-educated uh, places. So even in Africa, this uh, in the African continent, this has arisen uh, as an issue because think about Chinua Achebe and you think about Wole Soinka, you think about somebody like Amos Tutuola who writes a palm wine drinkard, right. which is in a very, very local language. And then there is the question of how should an African express themselves? Should they write in English? Should they write in their local language? Should they write in Patwa? And these debates are constantly with us. I think it's a great question because, you know, it's it's a little bit of that tension between, you know, whatever the the vernacular and the other, right? Again, if you were to, and you've thought about this for the last so many years, so I would request you to think of the next 100, 200 years of whether, <laughs> whether one can try and draw an arc and see whether there's a tendency at work here. I think definitely there is um, much more of an attempt to capture the vernacular idioms and the vernacular movements of uh, of language. Uh, you know, one might say, why does it have to be in English at all? You know, why why couldn't a writer simply write in his or her own language and have that read by uh, people outside of that language tradition? Uh, in translation, or better still, for people to learn the language and read it in the original. Why does English have to be the the language that uh, preserves either what you were describing? What as do you think of, will happen? What do I think? I, it with, was, these with regard to in, India, or just uh, in around general the world, about the, to, around to, the world? Um, because in a way, uh, you know, language is a great site where this residue, the shadow, lives lives yeah. on. Now it could be English, it could be Dutch, it could be. Any language of any colonizer. I don't know whether South Africa is any different. You've taken a yeah, few but names. I think polyglot novels will probably come into it. So recently, just a few months ago, there's a wonderful novel by this Kenyan novelist, uh, Sophie uh, Udiambu Abuar, called Dragonfly Sea, which is set on the island of Lamu, just outside of Kenya. And she's indexing the history of the great Chinese uh, admiral, Zheng He's travels across the ocean before the Chinese disengage from the sea. And the idea that Chinese came and settled in Kenya and then they had their descendants. So the whole novel is built on this conceit, as it were, of a sinicized African past. <laughs> and so the yeah. language in the novel is in, you know, there are multiple registers. So there's Swahili, there is Chinese, and there's English. And there is the connected histories of 
uh, present-day Kenya and of uh, medieval China. And I think this question of circulation, this question of different genealogies, and I think what we are required to do right now is to get away from what Walter Mignolo and others call the colonial wound and remember differently. We have to remember differently. Colonialism is not all that there is to remember. But I would I would also add that um, we're all formed by so many multiple influences. You know, we are we're shaped not just by what we read, but also by what we see. You know, the our, our consumption of different kinds of media. You That's know, film, right. theater, yes, uh, play. You know, uh, we we just we're just exposed to so much more mm-hmm. through uh, globalization, mm-hmm. and it is really hard to separate. You know, how we speak and how we think from all these multiple influences, which is why I'm hesitant about using words like mimic, mimicry or mimic men, because I like we're here all speaking English. For none of us is English our first language, and yet we're here speaking, you know, with... I would say it's my first language. I mean, because in the sense that I went to school and English education from the age of five, and I'm yeah, more fluent in English than... Let's not than... talk about education. I mean, what was the language when you grew up at home? Right, but I'm probably less proficient in that language than I am in English. Uh, we could right. certainly explore why that's the case, you know. But I'm, I think, I, I think that, that's true for all of us, you know, that we all have different degrees of... Uh, but, you know, there is this sense in which we inhabit one world linguistically Again, and this is a world. lot more mixed up than we maybe even the lip things he is. But. <laughs> well, I think we are at a moment where uh, I think the word she was using, globalization... But I think more than globalization, and we have to see it separately from globalization, is technology. And technology is going to change the way we consume and relate to languages as well. And it is going to change so much that we can't perhaps even imagine it. Just you have to kind of press an app and a novel written in Suhali can be heard in Hindi or Punjabi or English and in a very good English language or in a very good kind of my own native language. So I think... uh, uh, the world is changing very, very rapidly. And I think the... Where's the world headed, Surinder? Uh, on this question of the shadow of colonialism yeah, on the yeah, future. Yeah, yeah. At what, some level, at some level yeah. At some level, we perhaps would never be able to transcend our past. In some sense, in some form, it would stay with us for coming few centuries at least. But at the same time, I think we are also at a moment where the world is changing very rapidly and very soon we would be living in a very different kind of world. Already in last 20, 30 years, we have seen how much has it changed, right? The way we can relate to people in different parts of the week and have a studio like this, it wouldn't have been difficult to think about it in, in, in even 20 years back, right? So you mean you mean the translatability of different kinds of uh, Possibility of doing different kind of things at different places would become so real that it would change the world and the hierarchies in which geographies are organized at this moment. Uh, the way we understand uh, geopolitics of the world and hierarchies of spaces, I think that is going to change very significantly in coming, say, 10, 15, By 20 years. By hierarchy of spaces, you mean For example, west, the first world, the second world, the, the third top, world, precisely west the at the top. Global south. Global south, all these it. things. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, especially the world is hierarchical. And that is going to change very, very rapidly depending and, on where. And what would that be replaced by? by yeah, it? that's where I think it would be determined by various other factors, which is going to be most importantly economic and political realities. What of is your the, guess? Of yeah, what? obviously the rise of China is very, very significant. 
India was very promising. It was seeming very promising, but we are now a little bit shaken up. And then that's just a word swap. Then no, China no. You look west. at you look at the graphs of wealth uh, produced by people like uh, what is that French economist uh, who's written Piketty. 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 Yeah. And he shows how, for example, if you go back to 17th century, how much contribution China and India made to the global wealth. And if you look at last 30-40 years, things have again begun to change. Europe is shrinking. North America is also beginning to shrink. So the way world is changing is something which can be predicted to some extent. But it that, cannot that, be predicted. That's not a change in the topography of the world. Is yes, it, it would know, be. Something else goes to the top. No, no, it yes. would be. It would be. It would be. Say, for example, we are still thinking through the idea of uh, uh, territorially organized nation states. Yes. Very soon that may be possible. It already is at some level. You mean that Many aspects be... of life, if you think about Facebook, we don't think of Facebook. It still gets translated through territorial uh, nationalisms. But at some level, this is also as a reality. You mean there could be new kinds of sovereignties? Or... New kind of, uh, of, of, of coming together. New kind of imaginations about community living. What's the Nation state there? is also a community at some level. And so I, if you think right. of imaginations... It could be of different kinds. I mean, there are lots of options possible. And What's the future, Dilip? And I really do think that we will have to think beyond the hubris of national borders, territories, maps, passports, all of this. Because if there was an ancient miracle of Christ walking on water, I think the contemporary miracle of the Syrians walking across the water to <laughs> Europe, right? With you know, you would think it's an impossible sea. But it's happening. But it's happening. And it's happening in defiance of old Europe's attempt to redefine itself as Christian. But is that because there is some kind of colonial guilt at work? No, I don't think, uh, you know, that That in, in the hearts of the Europeans, I don't know. I mean, that's between them and their God and their <laughs> Christian God. But if you think about the fact that the movements of people... Physically, as much as what Surinder is saying, the mental geography of people is much faster than it was. But the actual movement of people across the uh, pretensions of borders is vast today, right? People are surmounting what are, were seen as insurmountable geographical obstacles. You know, but one could argue that Syria doesn't have a border anymore, at least in the way... But how right. do you explain this conundrum that... Right. Even as we're living in this kind of extraterritorial world right. through internet, through right. through um, social media, through Facebook, etc., that while we're living extraterritorially, we are actually facing more restrictions. Precisely from because, one yeah, country precisely the rise because of right-wing right. nationalism. Because they go together. Well, this is a resistance of the rise of right-wing nationalism, yes, which has exactly. come up all over the world hmm. at the same time even though local contexts are very mm -hmm. different, I think perhaps is, is a reaction to, to a ground that is, that is actually yeah. melting. To go back to an older yeah. time, to yeah. go back yeah. to an older imagination, yeah. Yeah. to go back to the time when we imagined nations were those havens of security, whereas nations even really... Even if it's the imagined past. Yeah. <laughs> it's real still, but you want to solidify it because there are sections who can't really get hold of the changing realities. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we Thank look you. forward to having you soon Thank again. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.